Well, I think the reason why songs about the resurrection of Christ mean so much to, to those of us who believe in him is because that's our hope, that um, we will live even not if we die, but when we die. Because unless um, Jesus returns, all of us are going to die someday. And our bodies will return to the dust from whence we came. And uh, from the sounds of that, I'm sure you're thinking, oh, Ken must still be musing on mortality, on man's mortality. Um, And it's true. Uh, Last Sunday, we, we saw how Moses mused on man's mortality During the last 40 years of his life, as he watched an entire generation of Israelites die off in the wilderness. And uh, today, I I thought it would be good just to provide a a follow-up to our study of Psalm 90 uh, that we saw last week by by looking at another man in Scripture who mused on man's mortality, believe it or not, even more than Moses. And uh, as... God did with Moses, the Holy Spirit directed this particular man to journal what could be very easily uh, be viewed as the morbid musings of a nihilistic, pessimistic individual or somebody with a really bad case of midlife crisis. Of course, I'm referring to Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes, which is the Spirit-inspired memoirs of Solomon in which he chronicled his grand experiment. He used his life to discover the true source of meaning and and satisfaction in life. And as you know, Solomon was the the smartest and the richest man who ever lived. He had achieved and uh, accumulated what most people only dream of, and yet something was missing in his life. And after all his searching and musing, he realized that life under the sun, in other words, life apart from a relationship with God, is futile. It's it's frustrating to the point that it makes a person wish that they had never been born. Not just that they would die, but they wish they had never even existed. And so, uh, along with the main theme, which we all know of Ecclesiastes, uh, the futility of life, vanity of uh, vanities of vanities, uh, life is a chasing after the wind, that's obviously a main theme, but there's also, coupled with that, the theme of the inevitability of death, and not just the inevitability of death, but the commonality of death, The death affects us all, we're all in this thing together. And Solomon was ruthless and and relentless in reminding his readers about man's mortality. And again and again, he he mentioned over and over again how we're all going to die. And it doesn't matter if you're good or bad, whether you honor God or don't honor God, we're all going to die. And let me just read a few verses for you to to show you this, how it's just a... Weave throughout this, this book, and if you're there, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, you can follow along with me. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It sounds very similar to what Moses was saying, right? Is, is you know, generations come and go, but the Lord remains forever. Chapter 2, verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it, is also, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. It doesn't matter if you're a wise man or a, or a fool, uh, you're both going to die. Verse 16, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with a fool, inasmuch as in the coming days will all be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. We all come to the same end. Chapter 3, verse 2 This is that classic section about there's a time for everything. There's a time for every event under under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. Look at verses 19 and 20 of that same chapter. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. 
As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Now he's not just comparing us to, to our fellow human beings. Now he's comparing us to, to a dog. That in the same way your dog's going to die, you might have a dead dog buried in your backyard for all we know, right? But you're going to be there someday too. Not in your backyard, hopefully. Hopefully your family will do a little better job than that than taking you out in the backyard. Um, no lie, this is, this is a true story, okay? I was standing out front one day, this is years ago, and uh, some guests came to the church and I had gone out there to I- introduce myself and get to know them a little bit and they started telling me about their family and, and uh, I mean... I got to believe they were telling me the truth. They just had mentioned how, how their, their, their uh, I think it was their grandfather uh, or father had, had died in, in recent months and they didn't have enough money to, to give him a proper burial. So they said that they had taken a backhoe, a backhoe out in behind their house, dug a hole and sprayed him with uh, a bunch of Windex and stuff and uh, put him in the ground. And I was like, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. And uh, wow, that, that actually, that's legal? You can do that? And uh, they were serious, and, and, uh, and uh, I was like, wow. Um, the point is, now, you know, we're just like animals. We're, we, we die just like they are. Look at chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? In other words, what's the purpose of life? We're, you know, we're going to leave the same way we came, naked, you know, with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. Life just seems to be uh, this, this pointless uh, existence. Uh, chapter 6, verse 6. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. In other words, even if you live for for. for a thousand years, twice. You live for 2,000 years, you're still going to end up in the same place as the guy who lives 70, 80 years. Chapter 8, verse 8. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. In other words, you have no authority over the day you're going to die. You've got an appointment with death, I've got an appointment with death, and there's nothing we can do about it. And then chapter 9, verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. This is why some people don't know what to do with the book of Ecclesiastes. They're like, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? It sounds so depressing, so pagan, so almost atheistic. And by the way, this is atheist's favorite book of the Bible to quote from, and you can see why. But we have to keep in mind that what Solomon is describing here is life under the sun. And what that expression means and how he uses it in, in this book is, is life here on earth. If you didn't have a Bible, if you didn't know there was a God, this is how you would view life. This is the only perspective that you could come up with. You see people live, you see people die. doesn't matter if they're wise or foolish, rich or poor, godly, ungodly, they all die. You put them in the grave, just like the dog in the backyard. Without a Bible, you're like, you know what? We all come to the same end. This is, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. What is, what is this? I wish I was never even born. Again, he's describing life under the sun, as if there wasn't a God, as if there wasn't the Word of God. And so, in order to keep people from classifying his autobiography as this cynical ramblings of a, of, a, of a gloomy, fatalistic skeptic, Solomon was sure to emphasize that life is a gift from God. And, and the key to fully enjoying the life that God has given us is to honor and obey Him. And in the midst of all the, 
all the dark, depressing musing that he does about the futility of life and the inevitability of death, he was careful to insert helpful and, and hopeful hints along the way of his ultimate conclusion. And, and these, there's a, there's a series of six passages throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that really serve as, as road marks or, or you know, road signs along the way. And kind of as you're going along and you're losing hope, you're like, oh, where are we going? Are we lost? And, and oh, 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 look, Houston, 50 miles. Okay, good, we're still on the same track. We're on the right road, right? Um, and then you're like, oh, I don't know, it just uh, seems like we're getting further away. To, you know, oh, oh, 30 miles. Okay, great. Oh, oh, 15 miles. Oh, 10 miles. We're getting there. And, and that's what these passages serve for us. For example, look at chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. This is the first road sign that gives us some, some help and some hope. After he got done describing the futility of all endeavor in life and all the things that he tried to find happiness in and, and talking about how futile life is. Verse 23, notice, because all his days, his task is painful and grievous, even at night his mind is not rest. This too is vain. In other words, life is just a, a, a painful, grievous experience. Or so you think. Notice what he says, verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? This is the first ray of hope that we're given. That we're not lost. Solomon's not lost. He knows exactly where he's going. There's a method to his mindset here in this book. And so what is he saying? Hey, the, the bottom line is that, that we need to enjoy life. We should eat and drink and, and work. These are all good things. And ask God to grant us the enjoyment of these things. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. So life is a gift from God. We're so thankful he finally mentioned God here, right? Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. And then chapter 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given to you under the sun for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So what... Solomon is saying is, yeah, you know, we're all going to die someday. But in the meantime, God wants us to enjoy all the things that he's given us to enjoy. And it's interesting to, to note that in this, what appears to be a very gloomy, very depressing book, the words for joy, gladness, pleasure, rejoice, appear 17 times in this, in this, in this book. And, and in the end, what that, what that tells us is that in the end, this is actually a celebration of life. I think it's interesting that Ecclesiastes is, is the book that's traditionally read in Jewish synagogues during the annual Feast of Tabernacles, which is a, a joyous celebration. 
And to me, that proves that the Jews never considered this this book uh, negative and pessimistic, or they would never read it on such a happy occasion. This is not a downer. This is not, oh, you know, Solomon the downer. Or Solomon, why are you such a party pooper, man? You're making me feel bad about life. No, they don't perceive that at all. In fact, one commentator described Ecclesiastes as the Philippians of the Old Testament because there's so much joy. Even as there was so much joy in the book of Philippians and the rejoicing command and perspective, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. And as he wraps up this book, his personal memoirs, if you will, in chapters 11 and 12, we see the sixth and final time that he admonished his readers to enjoy life. Notice verses 8 and 9. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And so again, after seeing all that we've read so far, Solomon was up to something good here. And and rather than wanting us to go through life wishing we were dead, that's not what he was getting at. Hey, yeah, you know what? Life stinks. Or, Or as the people say, life sucks and then you die. That's not at all the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. You could walk away and think, well, that's kind of what I got out of Ecclesiastes. Well, apart from God, life does suck and then you die and go to hell. But that's not the message. There is a God, amen? And if you have a relationship with him, life is good. Even when it's bad. Even when it's confusing and frustrating and driving you crazy. It's still good. And so rather than wishing you were dead or had never been born in the first place, Solomon wanted us to realize that life is worth living after all. And he wanted to help us make the most of our lives. And so he was encouraging us to to live life to the fullest, to just go for it, to, to stop existing and start living. And I want to look at this last appeal to rejoice in its context, verses, chapter 11, verse 7, all the way to chapter 12, verse 7. And and essentially what the message of this passage and the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is live without reserve and die without regret. Live without reserve and die without regret. Regret. So if you want a title, because I didn't provide one for you, uh, you could simply call it No Reserves, No Regrets. That's the message of the book of, of Ecclesiastes. No reserves, no regrets. And this passage, as you'll see when I read it in just a moment, contains stellar advice for young people and old people alike. And the bottom line here is is that we need to remember God amid the blessings and the possibilities of youth as well as amid the burdens and difficulties of old age. Notice what he says as he wraps up this book. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. The light is pleasant and it is good for their eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many. Everything that has come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because there are few. Those who look through windows grow dim and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low and one will arise at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly. 
Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Sounds similar to to Psalm 90, doesn't it? The whole idea of from dust we came and from dust we'll go and here was... Solomon wrapping up his musings on mortality. And again, it's not so much about death as it is about life. We get it. We're going to die. So, what should that do? That should motivate us to live to the max, to live to the max, to make the most of our life. And so, What I want us to see here in this passage this morning are three ways to live our lives to the max. Three ways to live our lives without reserves and without regrets. In other words, how to enjoy our lives to the fullest. And there's just three words, at least in the New American Standard, that jumped out at me. And I don't have a a fancy um, outline for you this morning, but uh, the Spirit of God alliterated this, or at least the translators alliterated it for me. So you've got the word rejoice in verses 8 and 9. You've got the word remove in verse 10. And then you've got the word remember in chapter 12, verse 1. And so there's our outline. Rejoice, remove, and remember. These are the three ways to enjoy life to the fullest. First of all is to rejoice. And in verses 7 and 8, Solomon was writing about the certainty of growing up and getting old. Um, the light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. In the early years of our lives, it's as if, it's, it's as if the sun shines all the time, but one time, or one day the sun will set on our lives and the darkness will set in. And so I think that's a description of the effects of aging and dying as he's going to uh, develop even uh, deeper in chapter 12. And so you think about the succession of, of the sunrise and noontime and afternoon and evening. It's, it's kind of reflected in the rhythm of life. And some of us are in the, the dawn, right, of our lives. Others are the little ones in here and others are uh, kind of at the mid-morning or noonday or others kind of are in the afternoon. Others are getting closer to the evening, the older ones in our, in our, in our midst. That, this is the cycle of life, the rhythm of life. And his point here is in light of this rapid progression that we all experience from from birth to death, like the rising and the setting of the sun, we need to rejoice. Two times he says it, one in verse 8 and another time in verse 9. He says rejoice, be happy, enjoy life. By the way, this is not just the words of Solomon, this is the words of God. And so God is commanding us to enjoy life. God approves of our enjoyment. In fact, he commands us to pursue happiness. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to enjoy life. We see this in the New Testament. Paul mentioned this when uh, the folks wanted to bow down and worship he and Barnabas as if they were some kind of gods. And this is what he said in Acts 14, verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their ways and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, God blesses us with food and, and with, the, with the things that we need and, and with glad hearts. It's what, it's what God wants for his creatures. Paul told Timothy to um, encourage those who were wealthy in, in the church in Ephesus to make sure that they were um, being generous with their wealth and, and, and helping meet the needs of others. 
He said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And then he says this, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Whatever God has blessed you with, whether it's a lot or a little, he wants you to enjoy that. And notice what he says here back in Ecclesiastes. He says, rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow, this is, this is the line that should wake you up this morning if you're dozing off, all right? This is, this is God speaking, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. What? That doesn't sound like something God would say. Well, essentially what Solomon was doing here, he was encouraging young people to do, to do what he did in the sense of, Chapter 2, verse 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. So, in other words, do and see all you can. You're only young once, and so experience all that life has to offer. Live it up while you have a chance. Do the things that, that, that you want to do, that you desire to do. And th- this is, I think, shockingly ironic since young people typically don't like to be told they can't do stuff right that's typically what they hear don't do that no you can't no 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 you can't do that stop quit it can't go there can't try that can't be with those right but god tells them the opposite he tells young people to do whatever will make them happy it's essentially what he's saying Follow the impulse of your heart and the desires of, of your eyes. In other words, if, if there's something you desire to do, go for it. Enjoy it. You say, man, that sounds like risky advice, man. I'm covering my teenager's ears right now. I don't want them to hear this. I've been telling them the exact opposite. Well, take your, ear, your hands off your teenager's ears because they need to hear the next part, okay? This is not the whole story, okay? This is, this is not an invitation to do anything you want. This isn't a license to sin. God wasn't advocating hedonism, where personal pleasure is your, your greatest goal. If it, in other words, if it feels good, do it. That's not what he's saying. Unless we turn our liberty into license, Solomon added this. Notice, he said, follow the impulse of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. You're like, oh, I knew it was too good to be true. (laughs) Oh, he's simply saying, hey, realize that you're going to have to stand before God someday and give an account of everything you've done in life. In fact, that's the ultimate conclusion. Look down at chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so in short, what Solomon was saying here is, hey, have fun in life, but don't sin. You're going to have a whole lot of fun without having to sin. And so he maintained this, this critical balance between enjoyment and judgment. And all of us have to live our lives in this tension between enjoyment and judgment, between pleasure and punishment. And if all we we do is focus on enjoying ourselves, then judgment is very threatening. On the other hand, if all we do is think about being judged someday, then, you, you know, your enjoyment suffers. Like, hey, pal, you need to lighten up a little bit, okay? You relax. He's going to say that in the next verse. I would even go one step further here and say that that our enjoyment in life is enhanced by our responsibility to God, not erased. You're like, oh, not just erase that. You know, it's, hey, go for it. Follow the impulse of your heart, desire of your eyes. And then he just erased and said, yeah, but you're going to have to pay for it. No, that's not the point at all. He's not trying to erase our enjoyment. He's trying to enhance our enjoyment. God, God's not trying to trick us like, hey, yeah, go out and do whatever you want. 
psych, whack. He's trying to protect us. He's not trying to take away our, our fun in life. He's trying to give us the most fun possible, the most enjoyment imaginable. True happiness and, and satisfaction can only be experienced through freedom under control with boundaries, with limits. I think Chip Ingram has done a great job of it, describing that in regards to our sexuality. If you've been coming to the Equipping Hour Culture Shock and talking about, hey, the Lord has blessed us with this thing called sex, but it needs to be within the confines of marriage the way God designed and it's not that, hey, quit that, stop that. Like he's trying to, you know, somehow ruin our fun. No, he's saying, I want you to have the most fun imaginable. It's like the great illustration he used was, hey, there's a, there's a chalet at the top of the mountain that I want you to enjoy. And so that's why there's these guardrails all the way up the mountain pass. So you make it up there, right, without going off the cliff and, and wrecking your life. Well, that's the idea here, that, that the true happiness, true joy, true satisfaction uh, can be experienced only with boundaries, with limitations. Again, this is not a threat. It's not like, oh, and, and by the way, God's watching everything you do. And if you step one inch out of line, he's going to whack you. This is not a, it's not a threat. This is a merciful reminder. He's not... Intended, intending to take the fun out of life, but reminding us to live responsibly before the face of God, quorum Deo. That, that we live as if we were in the very presence of God. And when you live with that mindset, you can truly enjoy life. I joked with our son the other day, we had to go out for most of the day and We'd given him some instructions to make sure he was responsible with some homework that he's working on over the summer and, and, and uh, to practice uh, his instrument and things like that and not just sit there in front of his computer all day while we were gone. And I said, now you know, we put a hidden camera in your room and I'm going to be monitoring it on my, my cell phone. And he looked up at me like, are you serious or are you like joking? And I thought, you know, I might just let it go that he doesn't know for sure. So um, I said, no, Jacob, I didn't put a hidden camera in here. Come on. You know, I'm joking with you. He, he knew I was just kidding with him. But the point, I, I walked away, I thought, you know what? We act differently if we know we're being watched, don't we? And guess what? We're being watched all the time. Not by our wife or our husband or our kids or our parents, our buddies, our friends, our elders. Who are we being watched by? God, who's omniscient. He's omnipresent. And none of us should need a hidden camera, right? Because we have the understanding of quorum Deo. And I would hope and pray that, that we would teach our kids that, hey, we may not be there, right? They might have the house to themselves, but God's still there. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. And that we teach our kids not to live in fear of us, but to live in fear of God, a healthy fear of God. Amen? This is important, I think, especially for young people to Consider, follow the impulses of your heart, desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. That sounds futuristic, right? God will bring you to judgment. We will have to stand before God someday. Um, he will bring every act. That, that seems far away for a, for a young person, doesn't it? And, and, and young people tend to, to not stop and think about the consequences of their actions. They're impulsive. They live for the moment. They live for now. And they tend to make decisions based on whatever is going to provide them immediate short-term pleasure rather than considering the long-term consequences of their actions, their decisions. And, and listen, if that describes you, young person, then, then this is a reality check. This is a reality check this morning. That there is a God, and he has clearly told us what is right and what is wrong, and there will come a day when we will have to stand before him and be judged for everything we do or don't do. We'll answer 
to God for what we think, for what we say, for what we do. And again, knowing that you're answerable to God someday should, should motivate us to enjoy life within the will of God. So that we'll have nothing to fear on the judgment day. Why? Because we've, we've, we stro- strive to obey the word of God and to, to, to live um, in obedience to what he's told us. And so we need to rejoice. We need to rejoice in life. Secondly, we need to remove. We need to remove what? Remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Some of your translations may say, say remove vexation, frustration, and anger. In other words, don't, don't be disturbed and distressed by all that's going on in your life and in the world around you. I mean, life can stress you out, can it? Big time. And it can steal your joy and, 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 and it can, in some cases, cause you to, to do harmful things to yourself, physically, mentally. And so he, he, Solomon's saying, listen, take, take care of yourself. Don't, don't be anxious about anything. You're in the prime of your life. Again, he's still addressing young people here. And in, in that, the prime of life phrase in the Hebrew is, means the days of black hair. In other words, if, if you got something other than black hair or dark hair, and you, you are no longer in the prime of your life. I'll just let you know, okay? Or if you have no hair. No, I'm just kidding. The, the point is, he's saying, hey, listen, there's, a, there's a, the prime of life. You're in the prime of life. It's not going to last forever. It's going to be over before you know it. So don't, so don't waste this season of your life being frustrated and anxious and letting the life just rob you of joy and keep you from having fun and, and, and just enjoying life. Why so serious, Batman? Right? I mean, just why? Just enjoy life. Enjoy your youth, your health. Listen, you're going to have plenty of stuff to worry about, and there's going to be plenty of stuff that hurts later on in life. Right? That's just the way it is. So remove that stuff. Don't walk around like, was it Pigpen and the Peanuts, right? They had a little cloud over his head wherever he went. Just, you know, it's like, don't be that guy. Just remove that stuff. Not... It's the opposite, really, of, of rejoice, right? If you're, you know, if the opposite of rejoicing is being grieved and angry and vexed and anxious and remove that stuff. And then finally, and most importantly, he says, remember, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. What was Solomon saying when he said, remember also your creator? I think he meant to revere him, to respect him, to honor him, to love and obey and serve and glorify him with your life. What's the opposite of of remembering God? What's the opposite of remembering? Forgetting. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is the essence of, of man's sin against God and why God's wrath will be poured out upon Mankind, it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not, what? Honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was dark. In other words, they blew off God. They blew off God. Even though they know everywhere they turn, they know there's a God, they just blow him off which is the essence of sin. It's rebellion against the Lord, not giving God the honor that is due him. That's what it means that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we fail to give him the honor and the glory that's due him. And so we need to realize 
that God created us. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. So God created us. He not only created us, he sustains us. He's also going to judge us someday. And therefore what? He owns us. We owe him our lives. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. And so we need to remember also our creator. And so based on who we know God is, based on what he has done, we need to submit our lives to him as our maker, as our sustainer, and as our judge. I think this also implies here that, that, that God needs to be the highest priority in our lives. We need to realize that every day is a gift from him. We wouldn't be here this morning. We wouldn't have woke up and been in the right mind to come here to church if it wasn't for God who sustained us through the night. So we need to realize this is a gift. Today is a gift from the Lord. We need to live it for his glory. Philip Ryken has written a very helpful commentary on, on Ecclesiastes, and he said this, to remember God is to live our whole lives for him. That's what it means to remember your creator. But just, oh yeah, I remember God's there, and I'm gonna go do my own thing. no. If you live your whole life for him, it is to be mindful of God in every circumstance, including him and all our plans, praising him for all his blessings and praying to him through all of our troubles. I think it's insightful that he says, remember also your creator He could have just said period, right? Remember also your creator, period. No, remember also your creator in the days of your what? Of your youth. Why? Why do do young people need to hear this? Maybe even more than old people. Well, because too many times young people say, well, I'm I'm going to enjoy my life now and wait till I get older and I settle down, then I'll get serious. When I was a youth pastor, I heard that all the time. Yeah, I'm not going to get real serious with the Lord right now. I'm going to wait till I get old, get married, you know, get a job. Then, I'll, then I'll, when I have kids, then I'll start wanting to take my kids to church, you know. No, the best time to commit your life to God is when you're young. Don't wait until you get old to give God your life. Do it now. Why? Because the older you get, the harder you become towards the things of God. The more set in your ways you become, and I think the longer a person waits to come to Christ, the harder it will be for them to come to Him. And few people come to the Lord in their later years. It's, it's rare. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. On rare occasions, God does choose to save an elderly person to magnify His grace. And they're that guy that got called into the field to work in that last hour of the day. And there were those that were working all day in the fields, and then he needs some more helpers, and so he calls the, 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 uh, the boss, the foreman, calls one more guy at the very last hour, and when all the, the, the payment is giving out, right, he gives them a full day's wage. And the guys who were working all day, right, they're thinking, oh, sweet. If he's paying him for a full day, what are, what are we going to get paid? And they all got paid the same thing. And that hacked him off. Like, hey, this isn't fair. Hey, I'm the boss. And I can save people when they're five, and I can save them when they're 85. And heaven is, the reward is the same. Amen? So God can do that. But I think based on my experience, um, what I see going on in, in the world and in the church and ministry is that God's normal pattern is for people to come to him when they're young. In fact, the statistics say that 95% of those who come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior do so before the age of 18. In other words, the odds, from a human perspective, go down. After you get out of the house, you go out on your own, you start doing your own thing, right? I think what happens is, too often, the excitement of being young, having your whole life in front of you causes young people to forget about God or put them off until sometime later in their life. But it's presumptuous 
to think that you have plenty of time to sow your wild oats and do your own thing and then get religion later in life. James confronts this mindset. If you remember in James chapter 4, verse 13, talking to the, um, the businessman, uh, but really applies to everyone. Come now, you say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. In other words, yeah, we, we, got, we got plenty of time. I'll do this. I got my whole life planned out ahead of me. I'm going to go to this college. I'm going to marry this kind of person. I'm going to get this kind of job. I'm going to drive this kind of car. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. What are you doing? You're remembering your creator. You're remembering that, hey, I can have all these plans for my life. I can make my plans, but the Lord directs my what? Steps. So Lord willing, you're acknowledging, you're remembering your creator. But as it is, you you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. Listen, you know it's the right thing to do to remember your creator, to acknowledge him, live for him. And if you don't do it, what does the Bible call that? Sin. Listen, God wants the best years of our lives. What would you think of me if I bought this beautiful bouquet of roses for my wife, but I wanted to enjoy them a little bit before I gave them to her. So I kind of set them up in my, on my desk, my office. I was enjoying these beautiful roses. And, and uh, you know, for, they last maybe a week and a half or two. And they look beautiful and the smell and everything just, you know. And then they start to wilt. They start to turn brown. They start, petals start to fall off. They don't, they don't, there's no fragrance anymore. And I thought, oh, this is perfect time. <laughs> Grab those things and, and bring them home to Kelly. Say, here, honey, I was just thinking about you. Wanted you to have these. Wanted you to know how much I love you. Thank you for all you do for me. What do you think of me? Lame. <laughs> Loser, right? What's, what's the point, right? God doesn't want your wilted life. He wants you now. Don't, don't live for yourself, right? It's, it's totally selfish to enjoy your life and then give it to God sometime later after its beauty and vitality are spent and you're old and wrinkled, no offense, right? We're all gonna be there someday. But God wants to, wants to use us to bring him honor and glory our entire lives. Don't, don't just give him the, the last few years of life. Give him the best years of your life. Now is the time for you to, if you're younger in the Lord, and uh, just to develop a strong spiritual foundation that will sustain you for a life of service for Him. And it will save you from making a lot of bad decisions that you're going to regret later. And if you live for Him now, while while you still have your entire lifetime to live for His glory, what a blessing. What a blessing. Notice the, the way Solomon just concludes this section, just painting a vivid picture of the aging process that, that culminates in, in death. This is where it's all headed. And I think this may be the most beautiful picture ever penned of what it looks like to grow old and die. Notice he says here, Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. So Solomon's comparing the, the troubles of old age to, gathering, to a gathering storm. It's a, old age is a time when, when days are dreary and nights are long and, and there's oftentimes gloom and depression settle in in people's minds and their hearts and and old people suffer one trouble after another with little time to recover, and they go from enjoying life to kind of enduring life. Their physical powers, their mental capacities begin to fade and fail. They think less clearly, they remember less accurately. You have senior moments. 
I'm not saying that I'm getting old, but I, I've, I've, I've misplaced my car keys in the last year than I've ever had. Like, what is wrong with me? I can't even keep track of my car keys anymore. What's the deal? And then notice how he, he, he likens an aging person to a house that's falling apart. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because there are few and those who look through the windows grow dim. So he, he think he's talking about the arms and the hands that were once strong and active are now weak, they're wrinkled, the legs no longer are straight, but they're kind of bowed as, a, as if buckling under the weight of the body. The, the grinders are the teeth. They're no longer able to chew the food because there's not enough of them, right? The windows, I think, refer to, to the eyes that are failing steadily. First you need glasses and then you need bifocals and then you need trifocals and then you need cataract surgery and then you need a magnifying glass right to you know to read the menu he's, he's describing this verse four and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low and one will arise at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly i think the doors refer to the ears everything needs to be repeated loud noises like the grinding of a mill are low they're indiscreet I think he's talking a little bit here about maybe suffering insomnia, right? As you get older, the, it seems that you don't sleep as well and you wake up early in the morning and when the first bird begins to chirp or the rooster crows, right? You, just, you sleep very lightly and the slightest sound wakes you up. The daughters of, of music here are maybe your vocal cords, your your voice begins to crack and begins to be unsteady. Verse 5, Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. I scold my dad these days when he tries to get up on a ladder. I'm like, Dad, what are you thinking? Don't go up there. Let me do that. I'll clean your gutters. And then I'm up, the, up on the ladder going, whoa, I'm not feeling so good up here. <laughs> What's happening? Right? We, it's tend to, you know, views, right? You start to get heights, nervous about heights and tall buildings and cliffs and you're afraid to go out alone or, or go out at night. You don't like to drive at night, right? And, and there's a lack of confidence. And the almond tree, I think, refers to the graying, the whitening of the hair and uh, grasshoppers normally spring about, but now it just kind of drags itself along, which I think pictures the, the old person beginning to get bent over and just slowly inching along. The reference there to the caperberry, um, I think it's talking about just your appetites diminish. You have no appetite. You have to force yourself to eat. Your sexual desire wanes. You become impotent at some point, and, and then eventually what happens? For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. He's describing a funeral service. You die, you're buried, and mourners attend your, your funeral procession. They're just moving down the street here. Cars all lined up down 105, right, with their lights on, following a hearse. That's what he's describing. Everybody pulls over to the side, lets that motorcade pass. Verse 6, remember him. Before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Now, it's difficult to assign precise meanings to all these figures, but the silver cord could refer to the spinal cord. The golden bowl could mean the cranial cavity. The, the broken pitcher could be the heart and the wheel could be the circulatory system with the veins and the arteries. The heart stops pumping and the blood stops flowing. Regardless of what all this means, it's clearly imagery of death. Your body starts, stops working and you die. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Verse 7. So the spirit leaves the body, soul, spirit, leaves the body, return, the bo uh, and the body returns to dust. Genesis 3.19, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Again, that was the curse against man's sin. Obviously, if you're a believer, right, your soul, your spirit goes to heaven. 
your body goes into the ground and uh, your, your body is united with your soul at the rapture, glorified body. If you're an unbeliever, your spirit, your soul goes to hell and will be reunited with your body at the great white throne judgment. And then the entire person, not just your soul, but your entire body and soul will be cast into the lake of fire. What's the point? Remember your creator. Give God the honor that is due him before all these things happen to you. Get to know the creator before you meet him. We need to live for God in light of our approaching death. And so, again, what seems odd, an odd way of going about maximizing your life is here's Solomon talking about the inevitability of death and, and that fearful account that we will have someday standing before our creator and our judge to give an account of our lives while well, he's saying, hey, these are all good things to keep in mind as you're living your life because that will help you maximize your life. That's what will help you live your life to the fullest. You should wake up every morning and thank him for your breath. And ask him to help you use it wisely for his glory and to enjoy that gift. This is the day which the Lord has made. We shall what? Rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118 verse 24. The man who described Ecclesiastes as the Philippians of the Old Testament, listen to what he says. Why fret over our lack of control over the timing events our failure to eradicate injustice, and our inability to avoid death. Why fret over that? God has better things for us to do than to spend our time fretting over things we cannot control. We are not to pour more effort in understanding our frustrating and uncontrollable circumstances, nor ought we to spend our time comparing our lot in life with another's. We ought not to indulge in retaliation, resentment, bitterness, or dis- disappear into a fantasy world. Reject these reactions to life's difficult circumstances and intrinsic injustices. Abandon self-pity and despair. Thank God that he uses such circumstances to humble you, to make you more dependent upon him, and to be thankful for what he has given you to enjoy. That's great advice. That's the advice of Solomon. To enjoy life. Be satisfied with what God has given you, both good and bad, rather than spending your life frustrated with what he hasn't given you. And I think too many people go through life, their whole life wasted, wishing that they were married to someone else, wishing that they were working somewhere else, wishing they were living somewhere else, wishing they had a better spouse, a better house, a better job, a better this, better that. Listen, enjoy God's gift, knowing that he's in control and by submitting to his wise, sovereign plan for your life, you can experience peace and and rest and joy. One of the lines that came to mind when I was teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes several years ago on Wednesday nights is simply this, life's not perfect get over it, and make the most of it. That, that's hard for a perfectionist <laughs> like myself, or as Chris sang about my OCD nature, right? To, to, to just acknowledge the fact, listen, life's not perfect. This is not heaven. This is earth. This is life under the sun. It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. And so get over it and make the most of it. Make the most of it. Have a blast while you last. You can say it that way. That's what Solomon's saying. Now this may sound like a, or seem like an odd analogy, but I'm just going to say it. When I, when, I, when I think of Ecclesiastes, the image that comes into my mind is the, the Secchi's guy. You've probably seen the commercials, right? The, the, the most interesting man in the world. The Dosecchi's guy. And, and apparently, Dosecchi's beer sales have gone through the roof since they started this creative advertising campaign. It's been going on for a while now. And in fact, they just changed the dude. He's a different dude now. I'm like, oh, I like that old guy. He was better than this new guy. But 
You've seen them, the commercials, right? There's a, a bearded gentleman, roughly in his 70s, kind of cool, confident, charming, James Bond meets Ernest Hemingway type guy. Seated in this elegant bar with two attractive younger women on either side of him, and he's portrayed as the guy who has it all. Everything comes easy to him. He's the ultimate adventurer. He's just living life to the fullest. Every man wants to be like him. Everyone wants to be with him. And so he sits there and he shares these sage insights on life intermingled with flashbacks of him as a younger man performing these daring exploits and quickly, you know, in these, these, these kind of a quirky feats in exotic settings all over the world. And he ends every commercial with a signature sign-off. What does he say? Stay thirsty, my friends. This is brilliant marketing. It's no wonder why the Secchi's beer has become so popular because they're, they're simply appealing to the insatiable thirst in every man's heart for satisfaction and fulfillment in life. And, and, and so this is the guy. He embodies it. This is nothing new. Every person from the beginning of time has hungered, has thirsted to find true purpose, true meaning in life. And, and yet most people, thirst, thirst never gets quenched. Why? Because they're trying to find meaning and purpose in the things of this world. And sadly, most people never come to what seems like an obvious conclusion that there must be something more to life than what we experience here in this world. Like C.S. Lewis said, that classic statement in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He said, if none of my earthly pleasures are satisfied, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Wow, that's profound. And that's, that's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's why I think of Solomon. I think of the Dosecchi's guy. Because here's this guy, Solomon, who was truly the most interesting man in the world. In his book, he's sharing this sage wisdom about his life and including flashbacks of himself as a younger man, describing all of his exploits, all of his experiences to find meaning and satisfaction. But if we were to see a picture of Solomon, it wouldn't be this cool, debonair, suave guy standing there with a bottle in his hand. I think he would probably be an old, haggard wrinkled man who hobbles up to us and says, listen, if you try to find your satisfaction and your happiness and joy in life in the things of this world, you're going to stay thirsty. Because I tried it. And nothing that this world has offered quenched my thirst except for a relationship with God. And see, that's the lie of the Dosecchi's man. That you can make your own heaven here on earth without God. But the water of this world cannot provide lasting satisfaction. And that's why we all need to be reminded of those famous words that Jesus said to the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that if we come to you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, we will never thirst again. Lord, we live in a thirsty world. And people are chugging down all sorts of stuff trying to quench their thirst. And they've yet to realize that that must be mean that there's more to this life than just what's here on earth. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that's that maybe for the first time they, the light switch has come on this morning like, oh, I get it now. I see, I understand. 
Lord, that they would come to Christ and, and drink from the well that you have provided for us to drink from that will quench our thirst forever and ever. And Lord, I pray that we would also go out of here today excited to be able to share this positive message of hope of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not a negative, depressing message at all. It's a celebration of life that we could share that with, with others who don't know Christ and we could give them the hope that we have. And Lord, wherever we're at in our lives, whether we're five or 85, that we would truly live life to the fullest, that we would truly enjoy the life that you've given us, and that would even, it would even just be our joy, if nothing else, just our joy that, with which we live our lives that would catch the attention of a, of a gloomy, depressed world who, who, who maybe has a smile on their face, they, they act like they're having a good time when they're really dying inside. And the genuineness of our joy would draw them to us so that we could share with them the hope of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.